Attention, attention. You are listening to a pre-recorded episode of The Curious Realm. Curious Realm is busy traveling the vast void of time and space to find the best paradigm-changing content the universe has to offer. Enjoy the following transmission, and remember, stay curious. curious. Coming to you from the city of the weird. Exploring topics from the esoteric and unexplored to dimensions unknown. Shining a light of truth on the darkest corners of our reality. Welcome to the Curious Realm. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this pre-recorded edition of The Curious Realm. I am currently on location in Las Vegas at the Palazzo, one of my favorite places in the entire world, um, as is Venice, Italy, oddly enough, and Italy. We'll be getting into Italy tonight with our first guest. Our guest in the first segment is Catherine Children. She is the author of Shakespeare Suppressed. The reason why I say Italy is, uh, of course, the Italy is featured prominently in the works of William Shakespeare, specifically, uh, Romeo and Juliet. And we'll get into some of Verona and a very specific orchard of trees there that you'd have had to travel to Italy to actively know it existed. Um, and did the bard actually go there? So, uh, welcome back to the show. Catholic Catherine children. How are you doing? Wonderful to be here again. Yes, I'm doing great. I always be with you. uh, Same here. Uh, I always love our cat conversations, Catherine, mainly because typically within two weeks of the release of an episode, I hear from two or three college friends that I haven't talked to in quite a while. Um, who are all theater majors that are like, dude, what are you doing? Are you serious right now? And I'm like, yeah. Like dead serious. Feel free to listen to the episode again and start actually looking into your hero. Um, <laughs> because once you, once you really start peeling back the, the onion skin that's there that covers up the facade that is William Shakespeare, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, how did you first come into this realm of research, Catherine? Um, well, um, the Shakespeare authorship question, that's what, the, what we're talking about. And it, it came to my attention when I was in 10th grade. My English teacher mentioned that some people think that Shakespeare was Marlowe. So, I, you know, that was kind of curious and it stuck in my brain. And then a, a few years later, after I graduated, I came across, um, a debate on television with a prominent Oxfordian scholar, meaning he, he supports the Earl of Oxford as a true author of Shakespeare. And he was debating a traditional Shakespeare professor from a, a, a well-known university. And I knew nothing about this topic, okay, other than that one comment. And all I saw was Charlton um, Ogburn, who, who wrote The Mysterious William Ch- Shakespeare, a great, wonderful book. 
um, he just made point after point against the Stratford man and so many remarkable, quote unquote, coincidences for the Earl of Oxford and the works. And the the other man, the, the, the Shakespeare professor, and, you know, you're expecting him to be the expert and, you know, really you're thinking he's going to be able to, you know, knock him down with evidence. He had nothing to say really other than he thought it was an interesting conspiracy theory. And, and I mean, that's about it. Wow. Uh, and um, I, you know, I saw this great gap of evidence and <clears throat> at the time I had just graduated UCLA. Mm. So it was as a history major. So you know, I wanted to know more information. So, of course, I got Ogburn's book. And and also, you know, he was born into this. His, his parents were greatly into this. And they wrote another fantastic book called This Star of England, which a biography, really, of the Earl of Oxford. And anyway, it's just point after point. It just screams the Earl of Oxford. And he, he's the, the image that I have on the cover of my book. It's a painting that I found, that I discovered, that I believe is the Earl of Oxford. Um, um, after I got this picture, um, I don't know if you can tell, but he's wearing a hat, and it has little pearl and gold, like, buttons or spangles. And I found thereafter um, in an archive that the Queen gave Oxford a hat with pearl and gold on it. So it, 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 at the time that um, the, the, the portrait was dated, it was dated circa 1580 and the gift was in 1581. So it, everything like matches perfectly. Wow. Uh, granted, um, once again, this is, uh, as the internet would refer to it, Catherine, a, a quote, fringe theory, which is hilarious to me because, um, uh, most of the time when you're talking fringe theories, you're talking about things with zero basis, you know, um, things like, uh, for example, a fringe theory would be, uh, they, they demolished the twin towers and used holograms. To project planes looking like that's a fringe theory. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, the fact that the, the Earl of Oxford or somebody else even was William Shakespeare, um, is much more than a fringe theory. Once again, there have been great thinkers for a long, long time, uh, all the way down to Mark Twain, um, that, that have considered this fact, especially once you start really looking at uh, once again, evidence and, and I've got my air quotes up when I say evidence here for all the listeners. Um, because on our show, the, the qualification for evidence for me, Catherine, um, having been through the judicial system in America is would you defend your life with it? Would you go into court and say, this is the evidence that's not going to send me to prison today? You know, um, and this is this is one of those cases where the evidence just stacks up that the man we know as William Shakespeare, the great bard, is not who history claims it is. Right. And well, let's just jump in and say, yeah, well, please, who does history say he is? Yeah. Well, um, they they say that he was um, 
uh, a person from humble beginnings who uh, was born in Stratford-on-Avon, which is a village um, about 90 miles from London. It was a small village. And that he uh, was educated at the local grammar school and uh, until about age 13 or so. And then he worked for his father, who was a glover. And... Um, and thereafter, uh, he got married, and then um, somehow he ended up in the theater <laughs> writing. And um, in fact, uh, scholars call this area uh, the the um, the lost years. And we're talking about when he was in his twenties. <laughs> um, okay. so that doesn't, you know, that little picture. It's fine for a man of humble beginning, but there's absolutely no connection to education and writing. Mm. And uh, if you look at the evidence, right now we're talking about lifetime evidence, right? Um, There is no lifetime evidence that connects him to writing or education. And if you look at the works of Shakespeare, they are full of learning. You have rhetoric. You have English literature, English history, French language, French history and culture, Italian uh, literature, Italian language. It, it goes on and on, his, um, his knowledge base. So those type of things that I just mentioned were not taught at the local grammar school, right? Yeah. And Shakespeare also knew the law. And you had to go, uh, they called them law societies. You had to go to a law society to learn law, right? You just can't pick it up at the Mermaid Tavern, which seems to be the, um, what, what the answer that, uh, you know, intelligent people will tell you. Oh, yeah. he just went to a tavern and picked up that legal language, you know. That, that, which, that, that's a lot of legalese. You know, yes. um, especially for an, for an average person, I'm, I'm trying to remember just offhand, uh, what, what was his lifetime? What, uh. He was born in 1564. Yeah. And he died in 1616 for so, the Stratford Man. So yeah, you are, you are talking an average point in time where many things were still in ecclesiastic Latin. Uh, reading, writing was still the realm of the elite. And many of yeah. the elite were still fully illiterate other than knowing how to sign their, like make their mark on a legal document. Right. Yeah. You know, um, so, they oh, had yeah. scribes, they about, had people that wrote for them. You know, I think only about 30% of the people at the time were literate. Well, yeah. and, and once again, literacy is, is different than being able to sit down and scribbin. What, what William Shakespeare did and then the style in which he did it. Yes. And the Stratford man, he was born to illiterate parents. And mm. not only that, his children were illiterate. Um, and no, he never claimed to be an author. His daughters, they, they never claimed he, who survived him, they never claimed he was an author. His granddaughter, huh. his last surviving descendant, she didn't claim either. The town itself was unaware that the great Shakespeare was, was, you know, from there for, um, about over a hundred years. 
So this is all, unfortunately, it's a, it's a construct. Uh, it, there were two William Shakespeare's. That's what it boils down to. Mm. There was this, who, who were involved in the theater. There was this Stratford man who the records show he was basically a moneylender and a theater shareholder. Okay. He was involved in the theater. Um, but his name was only similar to the great author's pen name, which is William Shakespeare. And shake and spear is a noun and verb, spear shaking. And back then, spear shaking was another term for jousting. Mm. So um, it kind of gives away the idea that the great author was a jouster. Or, or liked jousting. And that was actually, it was more of an elite sport. You know, they just didn't have, you know, local jousting tournaments. It was, it was a very, um, uh, affair where you have costumes, where you have devices, you, you, you know, and it was meant to be, uh, performed before the queen, these, these events. Yeah. And she would give you a prize if you won. So, you know, you had to be, very wealthy to actually even participate in, in jousting. Oh, absolutely. So. Absolutely. I mean, you, you had to be able to afford armor. Um, you had to be able to afford somebody to help you on and off your horse and help you with your armaments. And even right here, I've got a part of the Wikipedia up from Edward DeVere, and it talks about how he was a praised playwright, though none of the plays known to are known to survive right um which is which is very interesting you know to to have him as a quote revered playwright um yes. and once again champion jouster uh it, it makes a lot a lot of sense when you're coming up with a nom de plume uh, yes as as an author you know something and um the the one thing i get into regularly with people not just not just the idea of the 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 extreme education, the extreme education that whoever um, William Shakespeare was had, whoever wrote these works, had a, a, a fantastic education, um, but also had an intimate knowledge of not just the English royal court, but the French royal court, the Italian royal court, the the royal court of scotland um they, they convincingly depicted uh these courts convincingly um and his knowledge was as you mentioned it's just incredible so how is it that someone with such amazing intelligence and knowledge of aristocracy and their sports and their language how is it no one claimed to have met him during his lifetime mm. um even uh queen elizabeth you know, this is, that's the lady, yeah. the, the queen at the time. Um, she, according to title pages published during that period, she saw two Shakespeare plays. She loved plays. She, she was constantly entertained. How is it she didn't met, meet this man? She was a very educated woman herself. Of course she'd want to meet somebody like that mm. who's constantly entertaining her like that. So... How it, how can it be possible that he was this big zero? Well, in 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 the same token, an, another really important thing to think about with the queen being entertained is it, it would have to be somebody within the reach of the royal court 
Um, if it were a commoner or just some actor slash hired playwright at the theater, um, if they were poking fun at the queen, king, calling them crazy, um, things like that, like showing them you, as murderers, you lost your head, man. <laughs> Like until, exactly. until they came over to America and said, okay, you can lampoon the king. You, can, you know, like that was a killable offense. Um, and there isn't just one play like that. There, like there are strings of plays like that where, where, you know, there's buffoonery amongst the royal court, things like that, where, you know, there's, there's active murder amongst the royal court and plots to murder people yes. and things like that. And it's yes. like, if this yes. was just a commoner, like, uh, whose daddy grew cabbage out in Stratford von Avon that was writing this, um, I think there'd be a different story and a totally different story at the grave, you know, about how, yeah. how he was killed by the, by the establishment. Um, I mean, you're totally right. We have examples of other writers being, um, in, imprisoned, like yeah. Ben Johnson and George Chapman. They were imprisoned for writing a play and they were, it was, I think, at least a month they were in prison and a couple of high up aristocrats were able to get them out. Mm. But, um, yeah, you, you risk your life if, if yeah. anything hinted at like rebellion or, uh, even talking about the succession, you know, yeah. the queen never spoke about who was going to, you know, she was unmarried. She never spoke about who was going to succeed her. And, you know, you, you could be imprisoned if you even discuss it. Yeah. So, yeah, this is not an, uh, an open society back then. Well, and yeah. another great example is the Essex Rebellion in 1601. The Earl of Essex tried to take over the throne. Um, and in essence, and, um, his supporters the night before this rebellion, his supporters put on a play, Richard II. And that play shows the deposition of a monarch, right? Um, well, the rebellion failed. And interestingly, they, they questioned this acting troupe and they said, you know, what, what's going on? Who, who, why did you put on this play like that? And they were dismissed. Everything was okay. But they never questioned the author who was William Shakespeare. Why didn't they bring him in and say, hey, you wrote this play. Why did you allow it to be put on the day before the rebellion to maybe to warm up Londoners to join you, join Essex in his rebellion? Mm. You know, no, never happened. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, once again, there's uh, there's just a a plethora of uh, there is more evidence to show that the man that we know as William Shakespeare, um, more than likely never pinned word on page that was spoken on stage one, like never happened. Um, especially once you start looking at details inside of plays uh specifically the one that i that i mentioned in in the beginning of the show uh my wife and i recently which is which is what actually um rang up in my head that man i haven't had Catherine children on in a long time my wife and i watched the 1990s adaptation the leonardo dicaprio yes. vehicle of romeo and juliet 
um, hugely stylized, like an amazing introduction to, um, Shakespeare and his form to a whole new generation of people. It was, it was a phenomenal take. Um, but it was during that that they started going through the scene of the, the grove of trees in, in Verona, Italy. And, and that is when I started talking to my wife about things and was like, you know, this right here is one of the prime examples of there is no way Shakespeare was a commoner. Um, there is a very specific grove of trees that still exists in Verona, Italy that is referenced heavily. Yes. And, uh, it is where the trysts happened between Romeo and Juliet, where they, where they scurried off to meet things like that. And, um, this, this grove of trees that exists, like you would have had to have traveled there to know. Yes, it's, it's about true. this grove of trees. So if, if he was a commoner, what, what was he doing just casually traveling to Italy? Like that is, that's an expense nowadays, much less in the 15, you know, early 1600s. And you needed, actually, you needed permission to leave the country. Yeah. So, so the we, we, there's no such permission for a William Shakespeare or the Stratford man. Um, and, but you're, you're talking about, um, that, that example of sycamore trees. And yeah, that was from trees, yeah. Richard Rowe, um, in his book, The Shakespeare Guide to Italy, which I really recommend. It's a very readable book. And Richard Rowe, I met him. He spent about two decades going through the plays and, and trying to find certain locations in Italy that seem to correspond with what's mentioned and, and not like the famous places like the Vatican or what, or the, you know, the, the river in Rome, you know, it's not, not like obvious things, but the, you know, like there's a chapel at the edge of this fountain near, you know, St. Peter's, something like that, you know? And so he went and he found these things and he documented them. And one of them, I think it's the first example he gave was, in Romeo and Juliet, the first act, someone is asking, where's Romeo? And so I think somebody said, oh, I saw him last uh, near the um, uh, Western Gate uh, near the uh, near sycamore trees or something like that. I, I don't have that exact, exact quote in front of me. Oh, yeah, that's she's another um, writer about that. So um, that shows you that. This is a nondescript place. It's not a famous place. It's uh, just one that you happen to to pass by and that he made a, a note of it and he put it in the works, maybe to help him to remember his journey. These little these little notices. Another fascinating thing is uh, his knowledge of a Titian painting um, mm. of Venus and Adonis. I don't know if we got into this in our last. I don't last think time. so. I don't think so. Yeah, um, there is a Titian was a very famous Venetian artist, and he made five different versions of the myth of Venus and Adonis. You know, the goddess of love and the handsome young man and Adonis, and he in his first four versions. Adonis does not have any headwear, but in the fifth and final version, he had a bonnet, a hat on, like a hunting cap. 
And Shakespeare in his poem, Venus and Adonis, he describes this painting very much so and Venus in it. And, um, she, he describes him with Adonis having a, a bonnet on his head. So this painting was unknown to the general public. In fact, Titian was able to, was not able to sell it. It was in his, um, studio at the time. Hmm. So it, it, it kind of tells us that Shakespeare maybe visited Titian. <laughs> Interesting. Know? I mean, it's, it was not, even if it was an engraving, it wasn't the exact one that Shakespeare saw. It was the one with, uh, Adonis with this hat on. Wow. So, I mean, that's one example. There's other examples where he describes paintings, famous Italian paintings. So, you know, it, it really says the great author went to Italy for sure. Well, and, and you know, for, there's no accounting for the Stratford man. And and even even once again, the the intimate knowledge of Scotland, uh, Scottish royal families, things like that uh, shows that whoever the author is, they are well traveled, well traveled, um, which would not be the case for a commoner in those. I mean, it's not even the case for for a quote commoner nowadays. Yes. Yes, you know? and the Earl of Oxford, he, in 1575, he took a grand tour of Europe. He started in France, and then he went into Germany, and and finally in he landed in Venice and used Venice as his base. And he went and he visited many of the other Italian cities. So, and as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, there are two plays set in Venice, uh, Merchant of Venice and Othello. And uh, he knows intimate knowledge of even the streets of Venice. Yeah. One street is called what's called the Sagittary. And and um, but it was it was called something else in Italian. But in English, the English version would be the Sagittary. It's where they made arrows. Mm. And this is what Italian scholars have come up with that Shakespeare knew that street. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and even even you know the the operations of the Doges, how how the Doge system worked, um, things like that. So Italian law, yes, yeah. Italian law. In fact, Italian law was first performed on in a Shakespeare play to England English viewers. Now, I mean. It, as far as evidence, hard evidence, um, I mean, there's gotta be, there, there's gotta be handwriting, right? I mean, he, he wasn't typing things on a Smith Corona or, or on a, you know, Tandy word processor. Uh, he, he was scribbing things with, with quill and ink. So, you know, somewhere there's, there's vellum with with iron ink on it in in Shakespeare's handwriting. There are original texts of these plays, right? You would you would think so, but unfortunately, there is zero. We have absolutely mm. no manuscripts that have survived. The um, no letters, no you know play manuscripts, poems, you know portions, nothing. Um, for the Stratford man, absolutely not at all. 
Um, the Earl of Oxford, we have some surviving business letters in his handwriting. I actually held one at okay. the Huntington Library, which was exciting. Well, and, and, you know, that would, that would be, I mean, any time that you're doing research like that, like my, my wife recently was, um, her, her grandfather was one of the head homicide detectives of, uh, the Boston Police Department during, during the time of the, Boston Strangler, things like that. She she wanted to start looking into things. She's like, I don't even know how to start that. And I'm like, well, you know, you start with birth records. You know, you you start there. You go with, you know, where were they registered for school? Where 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 did their parents own property? You know, um, there there are numerous places that you can go to because, yeah, the I mean, England's been keeping property records since the 1300s. You know, since, yes. since they've had scribes. So, um, yeah, you, you would think that there would, there would be some sort of certificate out there, even a pay stub signed by uh-huh. William Shakespeare, the, the person that we know as the poet. Well, we do have six signatures in the Stratford man's handwriting. Three of them were on his will. And the other three were on legal documents. But that's it, signatures. In fact, even the signatures have been called into question whether they were not actually written by clerks at the Mm. time. But outside of that, we have no records of any education for the Stratford man and or that he wrote one letter or that he received a letter. It's it's a big blank. And of course, with the great Shakespeare, we don't have any play manuscripts, unfortunately. So... I mean, if we, we could find one page of a Shakespeare play manuscript, we would, we would know who it was based on the handwriting. Yeah. We have the Earl of Oxford's handwriting. Um, but are, unfortunately. Are they a match in any way, shape or form between Earl of Oxford and the signatures that we do have of no. the man from Stratford von No, they're, these signatures and anyone could Google them. They're, they're very badly formed, even, you know, even, <laughs> even for a writer. Um, so, yeah, there there is no correspondence, um, but we do have letters that have survived to the Earl of Oxford. And and you know that 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 is really interesting to know that there is zero correspondence. There's there's zero letters, zero personal letters, zero things coming out. No one claimed to have known Shakespeare when he was alive. And, um, really when, and when he died in 1616, meaning the Stratford man, nobody said a word. And yet the Shakespeare plays were very famous back then. And we mentioned Venus and Adonis, his poem that was Mm. extremely famous. It went through many editions during the Stratford man's lifetime. And then his subsequent poem, uh, rape of Lucrece. Um, you look at the Stratford man's will, there's no books in it. There's no, musical instruments there's there's no anything theater shares that would say hey this guy was a theater man or an an actor nothing it's just very uh, banal we what we do have are uh is a bequest to two actors one a hemmings and the other condal um and the the stratford man he was actually a member of an acting company in 1603 when the new King James came to the throne after Queen Elizabeth died. Okay. He formed an acting company and, and William Shakespeare is listed in that. 
Now, we don't have any evidence that he actually acted. We don't have any roles or anything like that. Well, well, I mean, what about what about uh, direction? What about because I mean, I've uh, I know numerous people that write plays that that write film scripts, things like that. They're they're normally on set. Whether they're the director or not, they normally like to at least be there during the during the first night of run. They normally at least like to be there during some of the initial rehearsals so that people can be like, okay, like what was the motivation of the character at this point? You know, um any any evidence of him being there at, at quote muster, you know, like, hey, here's the sign in sheet, everybody, so that we know how many sandwiches to buy today. <laughs> You know, no, uh, nothing like no. that. Yeah, no. Um, wow. He was definitely involved with the theater, this rapper man. That's why he really became the perfect person to confuse the authorship with. And I and of course, I believe that, that the great author, who was the Earl of Oxford, he died in 1604 and the Stratford man who died in 1616, I think that after both their deaths, someone arranged it for there to be this confusion, this William Shakespeare of the theater with the William Shakespeare pseudonym. And, um, and that, they, those, at that event converged in the first folio of 1623. And that's where you have the first reference of the association of the great author with Stratford, and with Avon. And of course, there were many towns with the word Stratford in it and Avon in it. But, you know, if you make these two little hints, people are going to put it together and say, yeah, this is that town outside of, of England, um, Stratford on Avon. And so that's it. From thereafter, no one has looked back. Nobody has questioned it. Um, and even, even right there yes. in, in the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship about William DeVere, his father sponsored his own company of actors who oh, toured yes. through the region. And, um, and the Earl of Oxford himself had, uh, he sponsored acting a company and called the Earl of Oxford's men. And he also held the lease on a theater. Well, and he'd also during his lifetime traveled to most of the locations that these plays took place in because of his uncle who who took him in yeah um well um his uncle you mean arthur golding yes yes his uncle was a top latin scholar mm. and he probably lived with him at William Cecil's house, he was the lord treasurer of england and he was probably used as his latin tutor and um, that, you know, that that accounts for a lot of his Latin. Um, but he was born into a literary family, the Earl of Oxford. His uncle was the Earl of Surrey, and he was a well-known author. Um, as we mentioned, he had um, an acting troupe. He he staged entertainments before Queen Elizabeth. We have that on record. Um, he patronized. Dramatists like Anthony Mundy and John Lilly, these were well-known playwrights of the period. He was definitely involved in that, the theater realm wow. of this period. And he was known to have written anonymously. 
And back then, there was a social code among the nobility that if you are involved in the theater or writing to a very serious degree, you wanted it quiet. You, you didn't want the world to think of you in that way because that type of activity was considered frivolous. Yeah. Yeah. You're just, you're just prattling on in life. What are, what are you doing to carry on the fortune of the family and, and right. carry on the good name of the family in the court? You know, exactly. um, you know, you were expected if you were someone of his high nobility, he was a 17th you, Earl. Most of the Earls back then were like the first or second or third, when, you know, so he was from a very old family. He had a great yeah. reputation to protect. Yeah. And so people, he didn't want it to be known in his lifetime what, that he was doing this. People, people prattered, people of courts, um, prattered in things like painting stuff like that, but they weren't painters they they commissioned painters they they were patrons of the arts they right. may they may pull out a liar at a party and you know throw down or something but they weren't sitting around all day plucking a liar yes and the earl of oxford actually was the patron of the, of the arts also we have um over 25 uh books were dedicated to him books wow. on history and tra- translations and um uh, fiction, uh, medicine, man, many books. So, now, I mean, he was a hundred percent involved in the literary world and the intellectual world. Well, and, and once again, even coming from a family of published authors at the time, um, knowing where to get something published specifically at that time, totally different. Um, like you, you had to know where book binders were and things like that. It's not like you could go onto Amazon, give them a script and some artwork and say, publish. Yes. You know. In fact, if you wanted to buy a book and you would go into a bookstore and it, they were loose. <laughs> yeah. They were, they were loose. And then it was up to you to bind it, to have it bound. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, even, even looking at, the the differences between the person that we say or the the man from Stratford and Edward Devere um just vast vast differences uh, we have a few more minutes with you here Catherine um let's let's start talking about why i mean there's there's once again, a, a plethora, there's more evidence to show that William DeVere is more connected to the works of William Shakespeare than the man that we know as William Shakespeare, the, the Stratford man, as you call him, to make that distinction. Um, but why? Why, why obfuscate this? Um, why continue an obfuscation if this is the case? You know, um, what's, What's the purpose? What's the quid pro quo for that? Yes. Well, um, as I mentioned, uh, during his lifetime, he didn't want the world to know what he was doing. Okay. However, it would have been perfectly acceptable for him to get credit after his death and his works could be published with his name on it, his plays. It would have been no problem. But that courtesy was not extended to the Earl of Oxford. And that is really the great question. Why? Why didn't he? Like a great example is Philip Sidney. He okay. was a courtier poet. And during his lifetime, he did not publish 
um, works of fiction under his name. He had a couple pamphlets that he published, but not not uh, literature. But um, after he died, he, he died in war. Um, his sister, about five years after his death, published his work called the Arcadia, and she was a countess. So, and she, you know, and he was a courtier poet. She felt no problem with putting his full name and her name too on this Arcadia by Philip Sidney, very like a very long, really more of a novel with with some verse in it too. So. Why wasn't that same courtesy done for the Earl of Oxford? And, you know, as we mentioned, that's a great question. And there's a lot of theories out there. Um, I think a, 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 an important one is that a lot of these works were had some satire in them. And I'm not saying sure. deeply, deeply, you know, mean type of sapphire. Maybe more on the gentle well, I side. Mean, you're talking about a couple of like there's one where a woman goes crazy. Because of the things she did, blood, blood, I can't get it off my hands. Like oh, there's, there's some deep, Beth. there's some deep satire in some of those as far as what happened to the royal families that did people wrong and things yeah. like that. So, well, um, a good example would be William Cecil Lord Burley I mentioned before. Mm. Um, he was he was the Earl of Oxford's guardian. When, when Oxford was 12, his father, the 16th Earl, died. And back then, if you were a nobleman, uh, you know, with some wealth, and there were many estates that the Earldom of Oxford held, um, you had to be, you were like in charge by the, by royalty. The, the queen really yeah. becomes your, your guardian. Yeah, but you she didn't. She didn't raise him herself. She appointed a guardian for him, and that was William Cecil Lord Burley, who was her top man, her top counselor, the Lord Treasurer of England. He was really the most powerful man in England. And his motto was one heart, one way. Now, if you look at Hamlet, the character Carambus means two, two hearts. Mm. So we have a see a little indication that this character who was after with the second printing of Hamlet was called Polonius, and that's probably how most people will know the name. But the in the first edition of Hamlet, his name was Carambus. So that is telling us we have a little satire going on on the most important man in England at the time. And also his son, Robert Cecil, who succeeded him in power. Many people during this period associated Sir Robert Cecil with Richard III, you know, the hunchback? Yeah. The, this uh, Sir Robert Cecil did have curvature of the spine. So, um, and he was uh, a bit ruthless. So, <laughs> so people saw parallels with this guy. And, you know, again, that's another two, you know, demerits against Shakespeare. He's, uh, criticizing powerful people in the plays. So yeah. the point being is that if the world associated the great author with this humble man born in Stratford-on-Avon with no connection to the court, uh, no education, with nothing, um, if they associate him as a great author, then they're not going to see these connections that I just mentioned. They're not going to know 
So it's a, a way of decontextualizing the works. And there were other you know, little, like uh, the, the Sir Christopher Hatton, mm. he was satirized in Twelfth Night, a comedy. Mm. But there's little things like that. The Queen was actually a character in some of the characters, but of course, always positive. <laughs> um, like Sylvia and Two Gentlemen of, of, Ger- of Verona. Mm. So, um, I believe that actually the Earl of Oxford wrote these plays initially for her entertainment. And there are some early plays at court in the 1570s and 80s that were probably actually Shakespeare plays under different titles. There's a great one called the the history of error, and that was in the 1570s. And, Oddly close know, to the comedy of errors. Right, right. But if you ask the Shakespeare professor, comedy of errors was, was written in 1595, many years, you know, 20 years later. Mm. So it can't be the same one, right? So that's what they're constantly doing. You know, their timing is totally off. So they can't not see these early play productions at the court as Shakespeare plays. Well, now, now it just kind of sounds like Hollywood is following Shakespeare's footsteps with the remakes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, all, all joking aside, it is, it is one of those, um, it's phenomenal to think about and remarkable to, th- uh, to see the attachment because, because it's, it's not like this is gravity. Catherine, it's not like it's not like this is E equals MC squared. And we figured out that the C for the constant is totally different and it changes the universe as we know it. It's it's some books. Right. Maybe written by somebody else. It's no different than if if in a hundred, two hundred years from now, we find out or forget that Richard Bachman is Stephen King. I didn't know that. <laughs> the author Richard Bachman is the pen name for Stephen King. Oh. Man's got 20-something books. I mean, Running Man is one of them. Running Man is attributed to Richard Bachman. So what if in a 100 years it's just forgotten? That that was a nom de plume for Stephen King. That's right. That's right. You know, um, because and, and the why, reason you know, the reason why founded authors who were very successful. I mean, geez, man, Stephen King ruled the eighties. I challenge you to go look at the IMDb for Stephen King between nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty five. That man had three, four movies a year coming out based on his work. Yes. He had a, a stellar career. He had no reason to write under a pen name. The reason he did was to be, it was things that he was like, ah, you know, maybe this is a little out of genre. You know, maybe mm-hmm. my hardcore fans might not groove on this one. You know, stuff like that. So, well, I'm still writing, still going to get it out. So you put it out under a pen name that if it fails, if it tanks, it doesn't matter what the critics say on page eight. It's not going to affect Stephen King's career, you know. Um, these are common things that are done nowadays. Even even whenever we look, um, prime example would be the Bible. Uh, book, you know, 
Gospel of Luke was not written by Luke. That was the Gospel according to Luke, um, written by a follower of a follower of Luke, after Luke's death, you know? So these are things uh, very much the same way in in classical uh classical philosophy Mo- yes you know Canaries where were actually very prevalent during the elizabethan era well, and thereafter and even and, the attribution and, of works to your mentor instead of yourself could be yes you know yeah. um that that was also a very common thing especially whenever you're talking philosophy uh theology things like that it was very common to do things like that so um the idea that once again, it it just it blows my mind that more scholars are not more scholarly about this. You know, well, it's it's primarily English professors. They're the ones who are sta- staunch against any sort of change um, in thinking <laughs> for the for Shakespeare. They 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 are just you know keeping it closed. Um, but meanwhile, you have professor history. You have professors of linguistics, um, doctors, lawyers. I mean, you have many, many subjects outside of English literature uh, of people who have looked at this issue and think it's a terrible problem and we need to, you know, start solving it. Um, so for the betterment of humanity to know, you know, who was this incredible man? If, if not, if not nothing, just to give him his due, his proper due. I mean, yeah. if you wrote Romeo and Juliet, wouldn't you want to get the credit eventually? <laughs> someday, someday, that'd be great. And, and, you know, like this, this is something that happens regularly in music, that kind of stuff where it's like, oh, that melody is based on my song. Like they go back and amend writing credits and, and give, give people and now people's families royalties in, in lieu and in the background, you know? Yeah, I think- one of the reasons why I got into this is because there's so many people who really love Shakespeare and they're missing out I on love biography. I right? love Shakespeare, but there it's one of those know. like I I love chemistry too, but I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to dismiss or poo-poo uh, a, a new hypothesis in the world of chemistry that may shake the foundations of chemistry. You know, because like how like at some point we needed Magellan to go, you know what? See that little thin line? I'm just going to go past it and see what's there. You're going to fall off the flat earth. Maybe. Let's find out who's with me, you know, um, yes. and and you have to be willing to do that. Otherwise, the, the the bounds of discovery are gone. And when when you're willing to just continue something. Um, be it, be it even something as simple as the controversy of the authorship of William Shakespeare. When you are continuously w- unwilling to look at or investigate a trail of evidence that stacks up thicker than the evidence for who Shakespeare is, um, you are now the person in unscholarly pursuit. Yes. And in fact, this year was published a great book called, um, Shakespeare was a woman and other heresies by a journalist, Elizabeth Winkler. And she was able to track down some Shakespeare professors, you know, well-known ones and get their take on what's going on, you know, with the authorship question. And, um, you know, some of them allowed her, 
allowed her to ask questions and others would not. Um, and she, but she took it from the point of view of a journalist. She didn't, she does, yeah. doesn't have any, um, author in my favorite author in mind who Shakespeare could be, but, um, it's a wonderful read and I encourage, I mean, of course I want people to buy my book too, but, uh, her book is, is excellent. It's a great introduction yeah. to, um, why there is such a taboo against discussing yeah. this topic. They've, she, on a recent interview, she said they, the professors have turned this into a moral issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not, that's a, just it's not it. a historical issue. It's that's a moral it. issue. It's like, it's, yeah. Yeah. No, like we're treating it like if the book has a soul, you know, uh, yeah, like it, 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 it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And, and when you see that, when you see the, the literal want of confirmation so bad that you are willing to dismiss evidence, that you are willing to let cognitive dissonance just take over. That, and, and for those of you out there who may not know the concept of cognitive, cognitive dissonance, it's basically the idea that when you are presented with evidence against what you believe, you are willing to just dismiss that offhand because it goes against what you believe. Um, no matter how much it stacks up against what well, you that's believe. That's exactly what, what's going on, unfortunately. It's, so. uh, man. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those, if, if it can happen to literature, that's, that's the example here and why I, why I love having this conversation. Because yeah, why is it so sacred? It's not a book of nonfiction. It's not like this is, you know, like we're debating Abraham Lincoln's autobiography. <laughs> We're debating the authorship of works of fiction. 400 years ago. Made up works to begin with. So what's it matter if the dude that you said made them up ain't the dude who made them up? Like that, that boggles my mind, Catherine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what, what it means uh, for those who are holding out um, their papers will be in future judged wrong. Their biographies will, you know, be yeah. laughable, <laughs> you know, and, and they'll probably be doing studies about psychological studies of why they, um, you know, put up, uh, you know, a wall against this whole concept. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. That, that's the tragedy. And I would think that, you know, I've, I've been into this almost 40 years doing research and writing and things like that. And, I, I can't imagine being a traditional Shakespeare scholar thinking that all, all of my 40 years will be worth nothing. I mean, or if, if I'm incorrect, if these, if, if he, if points are brought up that are wrong. No different than any theoretical physicist who's been chasing a line of theorem for 40 years. And well, I guess that calculation was wrong. Yeah. You know, like, it, it, yeah, I, I can see where that might hurt, you know, yeah. but it doesn't, it doesn't discount your work. It doesn't discount your research with the known quantitative that you had. The question is, cause I mean, I say it all on the, on the show all the time. I am a believer's believer, Catherine. I, I, um, on numerous topics. However, I'm also skeptical and my job as a capital S skeptic is to be looking for the evidence that makes me go, well, I'll be darned. There it is. I've been looking for that. 
mind changed. Yes. That that's well, my job as a skeptic, not to not to destroy people's paradigms, not to come in and try and disprove things, but to look at things from a common sense point of view and be looking precisely for the piece of evidence that is so wowing that makes me go, "Huh. Well, that changes the way I think about things." Right? Well, that that's the right approach, I would say, but um unfortunately, um it's mostly ignored. Yeah. Uh, the academic level in, in, you know, this particular area. Yep. So hopefully it'll change with the future. Well, I can say I want to thank you for your time as always. It's always a, a riveting conversation talking with you. And I get, I'm, I'm my fingertips are tingling right now <laughs> from how fast my brain is operating. Um, yes. before we let you go, of course, let everybody know where they can go to get their copy of Shakespeare suppressed. Um, and where they can go to follow your work, where they can go to follow the work of the Oxford Fellowship, all that kind of good stuff. Well, my website, as you have it up, shakespearesuppressed.com, and people can talk, contact me there um, through through email. Um, I'm not big on social media, I'm sorry to say. That's okay. Um, but I do recommend people uh, visit the shakespeareoxfordfellowship.org website. Um, they have lots of information about this topic. Um, you can get my book also on Amazon. Uh, yeah, that's another one, doubtaboutwill.org. Um, you can read the Declaration of Reasonable B- Doubt about the Stratford Man as the great author. You can read it, and if you agree with it, you can sign it. And there's over 5,000 other signatories, and you can see who they are. And this there you can see uh, the well-known signatories like or not signatories, but people who have doubted the mm. authorship question like Sigmund Freud and Charlie Chaplin, Orson yeah. Welles. He was an Oxfordian, Orson Welles. So um, that's that's basically it. You've, you've covered the main websites for me. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure to talk with you about this lost part of history and how how we can recover and and course correct like we can always course correct these things we can always yeah. things bring things back to a reason it's not like the the world's going to end if if we change who willie shakespeare is folks um be willing to look at the evidence be willing to check that stuff out catherine thank you so much for your time today hold the line real quick quick while we close things out with the audience while you are online getting your copy of Shakespeare suppressed from Amazon and checking out all of the amazing work of Catherine children over at shakespearesuppressed.com make sure to stop on by curious realm curiousrealm.com is where you can find all of the episodes that is where you can like follow subscribe share comment all that kind of good stuff. We're listed all over our social media there. Uh, you can find us on all the platforms and, uh, curiousrealm.com forward slash store is where you can go to get your copy of all of our guest books, folks. Uh, when we come back from this commercial break, we will be joined by Gretchen Cornwall and we will be discussing Henry Sinclair, uh, and the possibility of Henry Sinclair coming to America and leading voyages over here um, independently as well as for the Knights Templar. So that, when we come back from this commercial break, right after this, everybody. 
The Curious Realm Podcast is your source for the latest and greatest news and events in the world of the paranormal, esoteric, and forbidden knowledge. And there's no better way to spark the conversation than with items from the Curious Realm store. Choose from fan favorites like hoodies, mouse pads, coffee mugs, and more. Buy books and items from your favorite Curious Realm guests. Get your hands on the latest gear for paranormal investigations and experiments we discuss on the show. Open your web browser and stop on by the Curious Realm store at CuriousRealm.com forward slash store to buy the latest Curious Realm wear and out-of-this-world gifts for yourself, your family, or a mind that you want to open. That website again is CuriousRealm.com forward slash store. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for hanging out through that commercial break. Thank you so much to our sponsors as well, especially True Hemp Science. These guys are amazing. TrueHempScience.com is the website. Curious7 is the code that you want to use. We also just picked up Wondrium. Um, Wondrium is a fantastic, fantastic service, folks. So if you, if you have not checked out Wondrium, you need to. That is where people like our good guest Richard B. Spence have his stuff about the occult, all kinds of things. They, it's basically just tons of lecture series about all kinds of things. Uh, I watched it. I watched a 12 part lecture series on particle physics from a physicist from MIT. Um, just amazing stuff. Step on by and check them out, folks. Our guest in this segment, speaking of awesome stuff, is the author of Secret Dossier of a Knight's Templar of the Sangriel, uh, Gretchen Cornwall. She has, for all of you out there who are acorns, you are well aware of Gretchen's work. She is a regular appearance person on the Curse of Oak Island because of her work specifically, not only into the Knights Templar, but into our topic for the evening, which is Henry Sinclair and his actual voyages to America. That is something uh, that I think is highly overlooked regularly whenever people are talking about uh, early American exploration, things like that, is that, number one, uh, Columbus never landed foot on America. Never, never happened. It was like an island way, way out past Puerto Rico, stuff like that. Uh, he followed a map from Amerigo Vespucci. And interestingly enough, Amerigo Vespucci knew where the place was from the Vikings and stuff like that. So that is what we will be getting into is that, that bridge of gap between the Vikings and Amerigo Vespucci and, and how all of this came to be because we, we were discovered long before we were told in school, folks. Welcome back to the show. Gretchen Cornwall, how are you doing, dear? Hey, thank you. Really happy to have this conversation with you, Christopher, and with uh, your uh, loyal podcast uh, followers. It's exciting to be here. You, It's just always such a great we we just ping right off of each other it's just fun it is always super fun i love our conversations yeah. they are lively and and literally chock full of information because your your research goes all over europe it goes all over uh the united states specifically the east coast and western or not western but central united states like upper minnesota area things like that um, and, and you've shared some great videos with us. You were part of an awesome Templar series 
that was uh that is available on Amazon. Um I purchased that a while back and just recently uh before before we did this recording I sat down and watched them all again. Um incredibly incredibly informative talking about the the Templar buildings all across Europe. Um and you have assembled a fantastic video uh about all of that 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 you shared with us. Um when did you first start getting into Templar research? How did you first come to this field of study, Gretchen? Wow. Well, that would have been 1995. And I found a book written by Lawrence Gardner, who passed in 2010, Bloodline of the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And that just opened my mind in a human way, I had read Bajent Leon Lincoln's very journalistic work, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, but Lawrence Gardner made the topic of the, the bloodline that, that Mary Magdalene had uh, children and was married to Jesus or Yeshua. Mm. Uh, so that was what did it for me. And I deeply felt through research that the Templars were not only part of that family grouping, but were involved in, in protecting the spiritual traditions and also those that carried it bodily. Wow. So that's a tall, a tall, uh, a tall statement, but uh, so, but it drives me that the, you know, their why, is beyond, I believe, the spiritual remit of the other... um, Ah, here we go. Oh, La Rochelle, France. The Templars practically ran uh, that port. Uh, um, This is a proximity video I put together. Chateau de la Rochefoucauld. Uh, They are fascinating uh, and overlooked important bloodline family. Well, and, and, you know, this, this video that you've put together really kind of shows as it goes from location to location, uh, the vastness of this Templar network across Europe and, yeah, and their connections. And, and it's, and Richard Lionheart, his uh, grandmother was a Rochefoucauld. Uh, here is his chateau on the north side of the mm. Dordogne River. It's huge. It's military. It's a fortress. The The French would have been on the other side uh, trying to, to hold the line against him. Um, France, of course, then did not look like it does today. We're going to Dome Prison, where Templars were held uh, in 1307 for, for about seven years afterwards as well. Um, mm. But they carved they carved symbols into, into the stone towers there when they were being held yep. there. And, uh, yeah, so, so this is... Their, their network was vast. It was huge. And their, their, specifically their network of symbols that they left behind. Uh, and, and we, we regularly have, you know, Kathleen Ball on the show talking about, um, the, the fact that their symbols even go as far as Brazil, you know, and, uh, one, one of the things that you shared with us to, to kind of start cracking this nut of the, the Templars, 
coming to America. And, and if that happened, uh, one, one of the big things that you shared with us, which of course, uh, was there, there was the HO stone this last year in Curse of Oak Island, uh, which, which has some alchemical symbols on it, things like that. <clears throat> but you sent specifically this image of some stonework and some symbols in, uh, in Nova Scotia. Yes. Right, right up yes, the road, not is... far, not far down the road in Nova Scotia itself. And let's start getting into some of these symbols that are on here and exactly what they mean, Gretchen, because I, I think it has a lot to do with the, with why the Templars were coming to America to begin with. Oh, it's all about resources. Spirituality can be practical, mm. but not everyone within the order would have had the aptitude for uh, spiritual initiatic capacities. Yeah. Uh, however, so uh, uh, North America had been visited repeatedly by the by the Norse, the Danes, and I look forward to talking about that. Uh, and there is a crossover and a, and a tie. But but those symbols that you saw there are practical, and they would have been cons considered uh, alchemy going back and have spiritual principles tied in with them, but they are very practical. So on the left-hand side, you have copper. The next one over is saltpeter, which is necessary for gunpowder. The next one over is actually a crescent moon. It's it's not um, that carving isn't is, is curved but the lighting and the way that that some the Corian mall whose image this is was graceful enough to let me borrow it uh he he made it look a little more peaked when it's actually a, sm a smooth you know curve so that's mm. the crescent uh uh excuse me uh, so that that's uh, silver, silver, but it's also representative of the moon. The last one is really trippy. That is a Cistercian symbol, but it's been altered a bit. But um, uh, the Cistercians are the cousin, older cousins of the Knights Templar. Yeah. Bernard de Clairvaux, who was a great leader in the Cistercian order gave the rule book to Hugh de Payen to the Templars. Long story short, the Templars are Cistercians with swords. So they're the military branch, if you will. Yep. And the Cistercians used a uh, rather runic looking inventory uh, numbering system so that they could discuss guys what they were were doing at market and these symbols were meant to be read upside down so if you've got mm. a if you've got a bag of 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 grain the monk selling at market and they did deal with the public as well as as uh supporting the the efforts in uh the holy land uh they were meant to be read uh, you know upside down and and kept hidden so here you have that last symbol on the right uh it, it could be representative of uh the uh, 4444 miles from hmm. this location approximately in Nova Scotia on the beach to Jerusalem and uh, in the center of that, you have 
the symbol for vertigris, which is a copper byproduct used in warfare. And you took vertigris and you laid it into the arrow slot where a feather would go in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that kept microbes and other little critters from eating the feather. So you could store vast amounts of arrows if you were going on sea to, to siege a uh, location. Uh, you wanted to get there with your feathers, your arrows intact. So that was an important byproduct. So we're talking very uh, practical and important materials. Um, you know, just briefly, the St. Lawrence River uh, Valley uh, was full of resources. Um, bears, deer, yep. fish, lumber, and Scandinavia was getting pretty shy of timber. And the vast Vast amounts of tonnage that was taken back to these the you know to Europe, um, and I'm I'm making big huge broad statements here. I'm happy to fill in the blanks, but um, so it's rich in resources for the skilled navigator, hardened seafaring men and those who were strong enough to handle camping out basically you know and in a harsh uh uh, harsh environment but but it was a land of plenty um and peopled by by can't remember the name of the well the first nation first nations people could summon up uh twenty thousand warriors at the drop of a hat yeah so we're talking strong people, but the the Templars and earlier Vikings, their their conceptual uh, DNA as well as perhaps even DNA, yeah. um, uh, we're dealing with with North American indigenous peoples. Because yeah. they had to, they had to mind their their p's and q's because they could get clobbered otherwise. Absolutely. Yes, the Mi'kmaq flag. Yeah. Uh, it, you've got the crescent moon, which means that you've been in the Middle East. You've got the the mysterious uh, five pointed star and the the red cross. These are Templar yep. colors. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's quite literally a, a Templar flag inverted. It, it is. That's, that's, and that's what it is. It absolutely um, is. And, and um, uh, interestingly enough, to, to, to start down the trail of why uh, they would come here, you know, uh, they, once again, they spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East. They were, they were the, the uh, Knights of the Temple to begin with. Uh, they were stationed at Solomon's Temple, the remains of it. Uh, that is, that is, of course, where they gained a lot of their fame for supposedly finding lost treasures of Solomon's temple, um, all kinds of things. But one of the things that a lot of people do not realize is that that temple, the money that came to build the temple, things like that, uh, most of that came from copper. Uh, the, the riches of King Solomon were not necessarily gold, silver, things like that. Sure, he had tons of it. But what he had more of than anything was copper. And he had massive, yeah. massive copper mines. And, and to the fact that even, even when enemies were passing through stuff like that, they had to pay a tax in copper. 
to the king, to the temple. Um, our God yeah. demands you give him copper, as does and the king. Really? And uh, yeah, huge, huge connection to the Middle East uh, when you are talking about the riches of Solomon and things like that. So to know that they went, that they studied these esoteric teachings, that that they found this out, because yes. Copper is is hugely uh, prized by Native Americans, uh, hugely prized by specifically the Native Americans in Minnesota, things like that, for its healing qualities. Uh, that is what they put inside of their medicine bags, things like that, as little chunks of copper ore, that kind of thing. So um, to know that there were quite literally... Uh, this will be our connection to the beginning. You like how I brought that around for us? Uh, you know, you, know, you we, are it is, brilliant. We, we have brilliant. We have nothing but evidence for Bronze Age copper mines in North America that belong to Vikings. Yes, yes. And the and you've got the legends too. They know that that mining ceased. For centuries, the Native Americans stopped mining. And all of a sudden, you have evidence of of mining again from 1000 AD on up through 1320. That's perfect for the Viking exploration period. And they've also discovered in Canada further north a broken stone smelting pot and the ratio of copper uh, ore matched that used in Norway. Wow. So they also found anomalous anomalous architecture. I like the term anomal, an, an, anomalous, excuse oh, me. But no, you're right. You're spot on with everything that you're saying. And uh, there was a period where copper was uh, difficult to to find in Scandinavia. They they imported it. They brought yep. it back from from uh, Lake Superior. Uh, in the great the Great Lakes, and they were allied to the 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 Mi'kmaq, the First Nations people. Yep. Uh, and they followed followed their trading routes. You know the well, same the same uh, routes that that the Native Americans used. And yeah. I believe there were a series of relay stations that were eventually built by uh, Templars um, over over centuries. And the last point that that uh, one might find evidence of the, of of Viking slash Templar uh, information would be would be the Kensington runestone. Mm. I do think it's uh, it's a real. Uh, valid object As and the uh, you've got to remember the DNA of the first Templars were would have been French and uh, up into nor- that northern uh, part of part of the world yeah. um, so when you know when Rollo uh, in 800 whatever married the the princess of the the king of Paris um, and he was created to do. He was the baddest, one of the baddest Viking chieftains around. And the king of Paris knew he couldn't beat this guy. He'd already sacked Paris once. And he, he Rollo was coming in for another round. 
And that was when the king of Paris said, right, uh, marry my daughter, look after the river Seine, prevent your own people from coming in, and we'll, we'll royalize you. So all of his warcraft, his, uh, the, the capacity to build ships, everything, knowledge of North America went right into the French crown. Mm. And it stayed there. And the, then along come the Templars and their brothers without borders. Yep. So they're able to take that even further. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And they were master mariners, master builders. They they built their own fleets, uh, built their own castles, all kinds of things. So yeah. as opposed to a lot of other conglomerations of knights, things like that, they were they were pretty well self-sustained. Um, yes. they, they, and they weren't finan unlike other knights and armies, they weren't financed by a king. No, they, and they each, each, each commandery, each property had to be self-sufficient and you had to account for yourself once a year to the grand master. Mm. And people have this conception that the Templars were all landlocked and that's not accurate. Uh, they, they held several properties along the French coastline. And of course, the last stand in, in Israel, Aco or Accra, mm. uh, the, the, their, their fortress was right next to the Venetian quarter. They were allies to the Venetians who were master shipbuilders and traders. And that's not by accident that those two were, were neighbors. And that's no accident that, that later on, um, in the, in the late 1300s, you have Earl Henry Sinclair becoming allied to the Zeno brothers. And the Andrea de Robliant, I cannot shout his praises mm. any louder. Uh, Look for a book on Amazon on Amazon called Irresistible North. Okay. And the Zeno brothers, as we say in it in the English world, they're called the Zen brothers in Italy, Z-E-N. Um, but they uh wanted to to trade in uh, northern climes, uh, they ran into trouble because you know, the the weather in uh, ice. There you go. I cannot. This is the definitive book on why it was possible for Earl Henry Sinclair to do what he did. And uh, Andrea de Robliant is a professor. Um, he in person puts his heart uh, in hand and, and says, yes, they did this. But in the mm. book, he takes a very academic, responsible, journalistic approach, unless you make up your own mind. So, but it's very dense, filled with a lot of information and it, it will just bend up your mind. It makes uh, logical sense to me. When you were on last time and we were talking about specifically the Templars coming to America to get copper. Yeah. To to make vertigris to, yeah. to help cure their arrows. Uh, yeah. One of the things I brought up was Templar glass, Venice, the home of glass making. <laughs> you want to, you want to know, you want to know people who are going to tell you how to make really nice glass for your stained glass windows. Venice would be the place that would be the place that you would go to learn. 
Um, absolutely. And, and absolutely the place that you would go to apply the science of copper nanoparticles inside of red glass that make, make the color red specifically. Um, well, and that, 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 is, that also, is an incredible technology. Um, and in order huge, to do it, you need a yeah. crap ton of copper. Yeah. Um, and, and also blue, believe it or not, requires yeah. copper. That's and, right. Uh, everyone makes a big deal, rightfully so, about this particular color blue at St. Denis and Chartres. Yep. Uh, and I believe, you know, just to be awkward about this, um, I believe that that if you want to have some fun, what if uh, and, and this is this has been this is written down that the ark had been covered with blue cloth. Mm. What if remnants of blue cloth had been found by the Templars, and that was the color that they were emulating in the stained glass windows? Yeah, yeah, just a bit of fun. Ab- absolutely, so. and and not only that. Um, Lapis lazuli was was heavily used, especially in the the chest plates of the high priests, things like that. Um, so yeah. yeah, lapis lazuli was was one of the many uh, minerals and and uh, semi precious stones that were in the chest plate that you had to wear in order to approach the Ark of the Covenant and commune with God. Um, yes. I, I did a, an interview with Ancient Aliens on this subject, and it didn't air. Uh, eventually, they they took a small section of mm. my interview out and aired it in a Templar-oriented uh, show. I, I recall but that. But the yeah, the tribe of Levi being yeah. responsible as as the priests and uh, the color blue cloth covering the ark may have been replicated in these great cathedrals. Uh, the the fascinating thing about about this too is is that you've got Sigurd, the crusader, a king of Norway, mm. the first king to come to the aid of Jerusalem. And he took 6,000 ships, no, 5,000 ships, 6,000 men. Now, they must have been smaller crafts than, than, than you know, the ships that yeah. we think of today, um, probably, a, probably a caravel. Uh, but he would have needed to have taken a lot of, of uh, warfare uh, mm. Forgive me, a little tongue-tied there. But he would have – he's my go-to guy for requiring copper from Lake Superior. And he went to the aid of the, the king in, in, in Jerusalem and uh, pr- protected the uh, Levant from further – further incursion uh so you know he was quite the quite the quite the badass pardon my french no no absolutely <laughs> and, you know no, he was he was something yeah. um uh so he 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 was the first royal to respond and it was called, I believe, the Norwegian Crusade. But mm. it was uh, King Sigurd, who has my vote as to who was potentially mining. Now, he uh, that first crusade. Oh, I'm going to to forget the date on that one. I had it a moment ago, but you know that that Norwegian Crusade yeah. was. Um, 
uh, well, well, it was a low, the, the 1100s, but, but that, uh, I still think that, that he was not the only one. He was following up on what was already happening. So I think that the Norse were, uh, Norse were mining, there we go, were mining in Lake Michigan from 1000 AD on up to 1320. Wow. Wow. So, and that 1320 is interesting because that's the the within living memory of the Templar order being shut down. Oh, absolutely, and definitely within the time that Henry Sinclair was out gallivanting around the Atlantic. You know, yeah, um, that yeah, was 1380 memory, to 1390, right up around there. Yeah, uh, Andrea de Robillon pins the voyages from 1380. Hmm to the latter 1390s and that's much earlier than a lot of people state so we're talking about repeated visits and you know this is tough stuff not everybody survived and of course you've got the the grave slab of uh sir gunn uh in in um the west in westford mm, yeah yeah westford the westford night, night. westford night as having sailed with him uh, purportedly. And, and a, a perfectly aligned, what looks like Templar structure right there as well. Um, it's it's pretty pretty remarkable when you start looking at the Westford Tower, stuff like that. Um, yeah, yes, yes. And I, I think we'll find more uh, in the future. This is not a story that's over. There is more coming. That, that is even uh, one of the hypotheses that I have floated whenever we have had uh, our good friend and guest Dennis Stone from America's Stonehenge on is perhaps what he has in his backyard um, is something akin to like a almost like a, a hunting camp where you would come and, and store food and, and store hunts in the big uh, beehive type structures, you know, the big stone made caverns that are there. Uh, but these, these structures go back to far beyond, uh, the local settlers that came there in the 1600s, 1500s. Um, and when they came and found them and asked the local people who'd been there for a couple few hundred years, they're like, I don't know, man, that thing was here when we got here. Exactly. And, and, and it's got wild astro and, Astro archaeological alignments. It is precisely aligned to things like, uh, you know, the solstice events, um, all kinds of sacred geometry being found, um, serpents. That's wonderful. All kinds of things. Really, really remarkable where it's one of those like it, it does not fit, uh, anything with the local indigenous culture because the local indigenous culture didn't build structure. No, not they, like that. They lived in they wigwams. Didn't. Where, yeah. where they could tear them down and move. They, they didn't build big stone structure to live in. So, um, it's, it's interesting. And, and there are things like that there that show what would be, yes, again, repeated visits to do yes. something like Gen that. Generational to, with maybe with large gaps, but, but certainly, yeah. uh, you, you repeatable, repeated visits and knowledge of, of that. And it was kept a secret. The reason why, uh, the Christopher Columbus story was floated was to keep the secret, which just was never discussed. And, and, you know, the, the French crown, the English crown, uh, you know, they knew 
that there were resources there that nobody else could have. Um, you know, the competition for those resources was low. Uh, the French killed off all their bears at around 600 AD. Yep. And you need to stay warm and it's a status symbol to have access to those kinds of, of exotic furs. And, and that became, was an open secret eventually within the age of exploration, but they, they were there since the, the time of the, the Vikings. Yeah. And uh, so this was an open secret that they didn't want telegraphed. And of course, eventually it did get around to, to all of the, you know, the Portuguese, mm. the Spanish, the, the English, the French, you know, they were all, they were all trying to conquer North America yeah. for lumber, copper, Animal pelts. Uh, and, yeah, and just to fine. just to bring it right back to the beginning once again, uh, Christopher Columbus didn't discover anything. No. Uh, there were people there when he landed, uh, so he discovered nothing. Um, pretty sure he was pretty well lost from the map he was provided that showed North America from Amerigo Vespucci, who had a map that was provided him that showed North yeah. America. Yeah, see, information degrades, and I, you know, um, rightfully so, we are realigning our uh, dialogue of the indigenous people uh, who were here, and uh, uh, rightfully so, we are realigning our our conversation around that. But Christopher Columbus was no dummy, you know, um, uh, he, he, he did get his men across the sea. He managed that and he got home again. So, yeah. you know, it, it did take a master mariner to, to make those voyages. And we don't know how many vessels from secret voyages went down, how many didn't make it back home. Uh, and the Native Americans would have their own political problems. There would be wars between tribes. So, you know, they weren't always going to have the protection of a homogenous so-called friendly uh, political group if 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 something happened to shake up the apple cart then uh yeah yeah that's a, absolutely very yeah. nice um yeah it's, it's so many intelligent intelligent uh scholars that that held information and passed it down and with their life in their hands you know uh, uh set sail well, it's it's the fact of the the uses of the material and the reason for the uses. Copper, though, though it seems like a trash metal, you know, we have this bad idea of copper because of a penny. You know, it's a, it's it's a, it's it's a trash coin. It's a coin that you don't think about. It's so much of a trash coin that it's actively made of zinc on the inside now and coated in copper. All right, it ain't even an, it ain't even a penny's worth of copper anymore. Uh, <laughs> that's how much of a trash coin it is. That's yeah. the mentality that people have for copper. But once again, copper and silver, two very important qualities. They are antibacterial. Uh, they are, they are commonly used in all kinds of alchemical formulae. Uh, but in addition to that, one of the things that made King Solomon so rich and so powerful specifically from copper was because if, if you add just, just a little bit of tin, a very common material to that copper, you end up with bronze, which is very sharpenable and very hardenable. Um, yeah. 
bronze is a much better substitute than steel for arrow points. Yes. Steel is very expensive to produce. Steel is very time-consuming to produce. Bronze is not. It's at a much lower melting point. It's much easier to produce in the field. It's much easier to produce a thousand at a time than trying to produce and sharpen a thousand steel arrowheads. You know, and, you know, no, you know that you, now that you've mentioned this, uh, they've recently discovered a uh, within a Cistercian Abbey smelting capacity. Imagine next, that next to the palace in Norway, not far. So wow. there was an alliance between the king and the Cistercians, who were the cousins of the Knights Templar. Wow. And the Cistercians, uh, I can't remember the name of the abbey, but they were, uh, the academic world is hailing this one particular abbey in France that had eight forges as practically saving Europe's industrial revolution. And we're talking in 1100, 1200, you know, 1300. The, the concentration of expert uh, metallurgists, blacksmiths were at this one abbey in in France. I believe that was kind of northern-esque France. Began with an F. I apologize. I can't remember. But they were making uh, horseshoes, spikes, anything you could think of and selling them en masse to the general public. Uh, they, they, uh, so they, the, the, the Cistercians were your, your blacksmiths, your, and your metallurgists yep. in, in Norway and in Northern France. This is a paper that I actively just found talking about the fact that, uh, there, there is a huge cadre of smelting areas that are Cistercian in, uh, I'll send this to you. It's a, it's a Thank great you. study, I would appreciate apparently. That, you know, um, and uh, you have such a quick uh, mind, uh, capable of holding so much detail. Uh, that's fantastic. I would very much uh, appreciate that. Absolutely. So the the alliance between the Cistercians, the the Norse kings, is evident, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, you know, especially once you France is a huge key to all of this. And not a lot of people realize the extent to which France trade happened. Uh, so much so that even bog bodies, uh, that are discovered in the UK, quite a few of them that were, uh, discovered in Ireland, stuff like that, um, back to the 1300s, 1200s, 1100s actively show, uh, French resins in their hair. So there was active trade going on between the islands of Ireland and mainland France going back to the 1100s, stuff like that, uh, seafaring people going down the coastline up and down. So the fact that Norway had connection with them uh, is makes utter sense. They would, uh, you know, and even even the idea of the Cistercians. Get, the, get the term Normandy from Normandy, yeah. man of the north. Yeah, uh, it's right there. And these individuals, it's it's appalling how we give them no credit for yeah. uh, us being here today. <laughs> yeah, they were. Uh, 
intelligent, skilled. They knew how to leverage their resources and they made things happen. Yeah. Well, and and that's just it. That is that that was their charge. That was what they excelled at was going into an adverse situation and conquering it, going into an adverse situation and protecting people, going into an adverse situation and turning it into uh, what we now know as a banking system. Um, you know, uh, they, they invented so many things that we still use and utilize today, uh, from, from secret codes and messaging systems to, you know, the stained glass that we have just, just started much like Roman concrete. We have just cracked the shell of that nut, Gretchen, to understand that it was nano flakes of copper. Now we have to figure out how the heck people in the 1380s knew about nano flakes of copper. That's you know, like that's that's a bit of a trip. Yeah, that's an anomaly (laughs) in and of itself. Well, and, I came across a fantastic book in a used bookstore that was a, a real gift. These Sometimes these things just drop in my lap, and this one did. Um, it's in the it's in the uh, off to the side here, but it, this uh, very well written book uh, lays out why the dark ages weren't dark. Mm. That we actually had a great deal more knowledge. Uh, yes, transmission came in from India and through uh, Arab uh, scientists and into the West, but we also had our own that stemmed from ancient Greece, which which is attached to Southern Europe, you know, and that flowed north. We didn't lose anything when Rome fell. Mm. A lot. We, we kept a lot more than people think we did. Um One of the interesting things to keep in mind is a study has been done recently that basically shows we've lost 90% of our secular European medieval documents. So it's very difficult to establish via written word what happened, but you can make deductions through objects, uh, the movement of people, architecture, uh, traditions, etc. Yeah. Uh, for your own knowledge, I pro- probably would be rude of me to step off the camera here and look for that book, but I'll send it to you after. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. If it's right there off camera, you feel free. It's not I a have problem to open the at co- all. I have to open and the cupboard door. It's it, but it is <laughs> it's uh, even right here going into this metallurgy. You can grab the book real quick while I'm talking about this. Okay. Um, Thank as, you. as in many other regions of France, the West, that is to say, Normandy, Maine, and Brittany, had been a metalworking area for most ancient times. It was on the basis of metallurgical tradition well attested for Celtic, uh, Gallo-Roman, and also medieval times that is the revolutionary technique of smelting and finding pig iron began to be introduced from the 15th century. So, yeah, from, from that point. They are talking about these these metallurgical techniques that the Cistercians brought about. So, ah, there you go. Um, this is a, a seminal work, a very important work. And I don't know if it's flipped or not from no, your no, it is point not. of view. It is not. Uh, uh, but this, this is 
an amazing work if to to rethink what we believe our ancestors knew absolutely and when they knew it uh it's it's incredible it's yeah. an incredible very well written book by these these it's, they're academics you know um and they did a wonderful job with it so i highly recommend cathedral forge and water wheel well, we will add that to our bookstore gretchen uh, and put it right there next to your stuff because it goes right along with it and i Absolutely. i always love our conversations because we uh, yes uh, we we tend to feed off each other with ideas and concepts and uh you, you your knowledge of these things especially uh, their use of metallurgy, their use of alchemy um, with metallurgy is is so vast and so great. And it is so utterly important and vital to understanding the Templars, what they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, yeah, it's it's they fantastic. Were, they, weren't, they weren't on vacation. No, no. In, and uh, they weren't. And, you know, if you understand that in 1021, in Newfoundland is the Viking Ship Repair Station that is 160 miles north of Oak Island. Wow. That's a dawdle. Yeah. Yeah. That's a dawdle. And they would have discovered the Lawrence uh, uh, waterways and they would have just gone down the coastline. If you've ever earlier, you showed um, viewers where uh, Chateau de la Rochefoucauld. Uh-huh. It is in. It is so far inland. Vikings took waterways from the coast all the way up to that location to to the nearby city of Angoulême. Yeah. And it was at that juncture that the uh, uh, uh that the local local lord said, "Right, we need we need a fortress yeah. uh to protect the area." Uh, and Fou- so Foucault built his uh, chateau on on a rock, Chateau de la Rochefoucauld, Rochefoucauld's mm. rock. Uh, so, so they, you know, those individuals, and uh, you've got La Rochelle there on the coastline. Well, we've, we've got a couple minutes before we have to let you go, Gretchen. Uh, what, what, what can there people... There you go, right there. There it is. Uh, what can people take away from this specifically, especially, you know, uh, because... Uh, Whenever I have you on, I always, I always have to bring up Oak Island. I'm, I'm, I'm an acorn. I mean, I know you're an acorn. I see you yeah. in the groups commenting, things like that. And, you know, there, there are all kinds of angry people out there that are like, oh, they ain't going to find nothing. The, the, to me, the treasure is the history. To me, is the, the treasure is the things that have changed, the attitudes that have changed about the local area, um, about the abilities of not only, uh, Vikings to come to the area, but other people to come to the area to hide things, to have relations with the local tribes, all kinds of stuff. So, um, I think it has really reset a lot of the clock on early North America, literal North, North America. Um, and people like you and your research have really, I think, paved the way for a lot of the clearing of that brush. Uh, and, and, really hard, deep research into how they got here and why they came here, you know, yeah. um, aside from uh, any any mishandled rumors, aside from, you know, I, hey, I ain't saying there ain't gold at the bottom of a hole. 
Um, there, there's probably tons of gold at the bottom of a hole. I don't know. Um, but there's been a great journey along the way of knowledge and discovery. And that's, that's what we're here for is that conversation. And I want to thank you for always coming on and having that conversation, Gretchen. Well, thank you. I really appreciate um, our our conversations as well and exchange of of the the mind and and, uh, kinship. I do want the Lagina brothers, uh, their family, to discover their treasure. That's what this started out as being. And astonishingly, you know, they they, – they have graciously accepted the centuries-old story that through science is becoming more and more unarguably there. Yeah. I mean, you can't ignore it anymore, and they've accepted that, and they're pulling in some very intelligent researchers who have dedicated years to, to this topic. Yep. They've got I, I they've got scientific equipment that can't be beat. They're leveraging everything they've got at it. And it really is the story about people. And Elk Island, whether you are can't stand it, you're still out there talking about it. That's right. And you've, you've gotten together with grumpy people who are now your friends and you're all you get to be angry about it once a week and you get to talk. And over on the other side are the people are going, yeah, I understand that piece of evidence. I understand what's being said here. This piece of wood is significance yeah um uh so you know so it does it brings people together it's a phenomenon yeah in itself and the history is the treasure but i hope they find the real i i hope they Uh, find i hope they find bucket loads of gold man i hope so too. i hope they find bucket loads honestly Honestly, um, because, yeah, it is it has been an ongoing thing that that was one of. uh, And I mean, even even to the credit of Oak Island, not even not even the show, just the legend of it. Like that was one of the first shows I ever heard on Coast to Coast AM was talking about Oak Island and, you know, how how Roosevelt was involved in a search there. And, you know, were the Illuminati involved with a search there Were you know, were the was Bohemian Grove involved with a search there, like all kinds of stuff. (laughs) And it just blew my mind. And yeah, it was one of the many sideline topics like this that came across my table from that show. Uh, and I've been fascinated by it since and the connections it has. Yes. To the Knights Templar are remarkable. Uh, the connections that the Knights Templar have to North America, Northeast America to Central North America, um, the Midwest, stuff like that are, yeah. are deep. Uh, uh, and incredible. Vast, the wharf they discovered dating to 1200. Good yeah. grief. No Native American is going to be doing that because they didn't need to. Yeah. And it's all about living and, re- re- you know, per- when you're camping as yeah. a way of living, you've got to be on it. They're not going to do something like that on a whim. I mean, that, that those layers on that stone wharf are uh, you know, from yeah. any God, it's so deep. I, I can't remember the depth, but but you know, s- six, ten, twelve feet deep yeah. in places. Yeah. That's huge man or hours with a specific heavy duty purpose. Well, and, and, and you know, uh, you, there are other st- other structures. The lead cross um, relating to the uh, 
mine in Gard, France. That's just that it. That shut down That's in 1340. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't, you know, you can say, oh, yeah, no, that was dropped there. But uh, Gary Drayton is a professional metal detectorist. And he has done work uh, that was aired on the BBC in England yeah. when there was an archaeology dig looking for King John's uh, lost um, uh, crown jewels. Mm. You know, he was fleeing. Um, Interesting. You know, Richard, Richard Lionheart's, uh, you know, little younger brother, uh, bad King John was fleeing, uh, an angry, an angry, uh, uh, group. And they had, they went, made the bad decision to go through the marshes on the East coastline. And they lost, uh, they lost the car, three cartloads of crown jewels and other valuables oh, wow. along with quite a few people wow. trying to flee uh, for his life. Wow. So Gary was involved in, in, in that search. Uh, so he is a professional from Absolutely. the UK and uh, he said, no, that was not brought and, and, and dropped at a later time that was brought and dropped in yeah. the medieval era. Yeah. And, Sometime and, before before thirteen forty, perhaps when that mine shut or they're close enough, it you is, know, it is all kinds of awesome. And yeah. so is your research. I love having you on. You are always welcome on whenever you want to come on and talk about all things Knights Templar. Uh, let everybody know where they can go to follow you, keep up with things, where they can go to. Subscribe, support, all that kind of good stuff, Gretchen. Thank you. I do have a Patreon account, and I am giving um, content to patrons uh, now. I've just started discussing myself a little bit more openly what drives me and i've had quite a few experiences in my life starting at an early age of paranormal experiences across many different uh, uh uh subjects so if you want to know more about why i am at the core of my being invested in this work go to patreon uh, dot com Gretchen Cornwall uh, or a donation button on my website. I'm on Facebook. You can buy my books on Amazon, yep. and I'm very proud of my YouTube channel. It's doing well. Fantastic. So um, I'm out there in as many places I can be, but I, I specifically haunt Facebook. Um, but thank you for showing my website. Oh, and again, I'm on Patreon.com. A couple of my patrons uh, actually subscribe uh, monthly on PayPal mm. because Patreon does take a substantial yeah. percentage. Yeah, and when she realized that and I realized that she's, she's one of my best patrons, she, she left Patreon and started uh, uh, under friends and family supporting supporting yeah. me through paypal so you know but i um uh yeah i'm i'm in as many places as i can handle and uh thank you for following uh myself and chris thank you for uh giving me the opportunity to be here with you and your your listeners always so. always and uh, you hold the line real quick while we close things out with the listeners gretchen while you are online checking out all of the amazing work of Gretchen Cornwall and getting your copy of a secret dossier of a Knights Templar of the Sangreal, as well as her amazing other works that are available, not only on her website, GretchenCornwall.com. Make sure to stop on by CuriousRealm.com. That is where you can find all of her books embedded as well. All you have to do 
CuriousRealm.com forward slash store. Click the picture. Takes you right to it to purchase, folks. Nice and easy. Support your local authors. Uh, without their research, we don't get knowledge. So uh, the more you buy their books, the more they get to write books and do more research that we love to read. While you are online checking all that out, make sure to stop on by CuriousRealm.com forward slash video. That is where you can find Gretchen's channel. All of the channels from all of our guests are embedded there so that you can easily watch, follow, subscribe. Make sure that you like, follow, subscribe, share, comment, all of that good stuff on the website, everybody. CuriousRealm.com is where you can go to find all of the episodes. That's where you can go to... Uh, give us your experience. If you are an experiencer of the paranormal or a targeted individual, leave us your testimony. We will use it in a show and try to get you some answers about your case. You can do so anonymously. Uh, talk to you soon, everybody. Remember, the conversation comes from inside. It comes from open hearts, open minds. So take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and stay curious. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Curious Realm. Stay tuned for more guests, forbidden topics, and hidden truths. Download the official Curious Realm app and view the Knowledge Vault on our website, CuriousRealm.com. Follow us on social media by searching Curious Realm. Curious Realm is available on your favorite podcast services, as well as YouTube, Roku, Amazon Fire and Apple TV through the APR TV app available on all app markets. Thanks for listening. Stay curious and remember the other side is always watching.